Paul says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast. Yet of myself, I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Father, we just pray in the midst of our own human weakness that you would just help us now and as we continue to worship you by opening your inspired word that you breathed out by your spirit. Lord, we pray as you said it is that it would be profitable this morning for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that as men and women of God here this day, we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work in our lives as we serve you and live for you. Lord, we ask that you prepare us by your spirit and as always that you would speak to us by your spirit's ministry through what you've spoken in your word. And we ask together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it is true that life is much like an elevator in the sense that it continuously has its ups and its downs. If you haven't taken notice yet, life has a fair mixture of good things as well as a fair mixture of bad things, of enjoyable things as well as unpleasant things happening, it seems, back and forth in different seasons in our lives. There are indeed wonderful blessings in this life. There are great joys. There are glorious experiences but yet there is a reality also that there is also painful burdens. There's unpleasant struggles and hard experience as well. And yet it's in the balance of that journey of the mountaintops as well as the valleys that we come in to understanding the reality of this life, of what earthly life is really going to be about. And the same pattern is true really in the spiritual life. In the spiritual life, it's much to some degree like an elevator as well, where there are wonderful spiritual experiences, there are great blessings, there are mountaintop experiences and walking with the Lord and great blessings, yet also in keeping us healthy and humble and dependent upon the Lord in our walk with him in spiritual life. There are also in the spiritual life difficult things. There are hard burdens to bear. There are at times persecution and hardships and difficulties that we go through as well. And both experiences are a part of healthy spiritual development, of bringing us into deeper relationship with our Lord, helping us to mature as Christians. And that's what Paul is describing in this section here. He's describing the reality of some wonderful spiritual blessings that he experienced, as well as some personal hardships in his life as well. Now, remember the backdrop in this section since chapter 10, due to some healthy or unhealthy, excuse me, and dangerous workers that had come into the church at Corinth there, Paul, who remember he called them specifically, not mincing word, false apostles. He called them deceitful workers. He referred to them actually as ministers of Satan. 
And in order to protect the believers who Paul loved there at the church at Corinth, which he had initially planted and pastored in the earlier days, Paul has sadly, to try and keep them from being misguided in error, he's kind of come down and he's met them on their own level. And that was the level of how these false apostles and deceitful workers loved inflating themselves and drawing attention to themselves. And so sadly, Paul is caused to kind of reluctantly, and you can tell in his language you've been seeing this, and somewhat awkwardly speak about his own life, which was something he never really ever did. To speak about his own ministry, Paul often sought to keep attention and glory and focus on Jesus and deflect any attention being drawn to himself. But in this section, to provide a true and a right example so that they could decipher between what was true and false between what was right and wrong, Paul here reluctantly does begin to speak about his own life and ministry to give an example of authentic Christian service, of genuine spirituality, so that the church can distinguish and identify between what's false and what's true. And so as a result of that, the blessing is we find Paul giving us some really wonderful insights into his life in this letter that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul discloses some really wonderful things. This passage is another example of that. At this point, he's still kind of reluctantly describing his own spiritual life, his ministry, and how the Lord was working in authentic ways through his life. Look with me in verse 1. Paul says here, it's doubtless, notice again, not profitable. This is not for my own profit, he says, for me to boast. But I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So though Paul, notice, was not trying to use the things that he's about to share for any form of self-promotion, he indicates he's now going to begin to share about addressing some of the spiritual revelations and spiritual experiences that he himself had with the Lord. Verse 1 here, he mentions that he's now going to come to the subject of visions and revelations. That speaks of the Lord giving a supernatural experience allowing a person to see into, you might say, the realm of the spirit. A vision conveys that idea of momentarily being able to see into the realm of the spirit. Again, we have to always remember there is a material temporal realm that we experience in everyday life, but at the same time, we should never forget there is a very real realm of the spirit that is existing as well. And a vision is a time when by the supernatural work of God's spirit, we're enabled to see into the realm of the spirit in a momentary sense, to see what's going on in the spiritual realm. Now, a revelation seems to refer more to the idea of something being uncovered. It's the Greek term up where we get our word apocalypse. The idea is an unveiling, like pulling the sheet off of a statue where we, in a sense, are allowed to see something, it's revealed to us that we didn't see prior. And so at times, the Lord may give to us a revelation about something as one of God's people to let us see something, again, as a part of the realm of the Spirit, to see something that God is doing. He reveals something to us that we might not have ordinarily seen or maybe that we need to know. Uh, we see that even as we looked at the gifts of the Spirit back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talked about things like a word of knowledge, that is where God is the God of all knowledge, may impart supernatural knowledge about something he knows that only he could know as God, but he may impart it to us to speak that forth in a way that's helpful for the body of Christ in, in some way. And in the book of Acts, when you study the early church, you see a few different people at times having such spiritual experiences, a vision like Peter had or a revelation. And Paul in particular, at least a half a dozen times, we're told in the book of Acts, has such spiritual experiences. And these were authentic spiritual experiences Paul had, yet you notice that he speaks very little of them. The book of Acts records them for us, but Paul himself mentions very little. In fact, that's what he begins to infer here. You notice that even in addressing, he says here, these visions and revelations, he says here in verse one, it's really not profitable for me to talk about this. In other words, what Paul's already beginning to face saying, look, I'm not talking about these visions and revelations in my life for any personal profit. 
I'm not sharing these things in any way to gain some advantage to my own benefit, whether it be to sound spiritual or to get people impressed with his deep spirituality. Wow, you have visions. Wow, God gave you a revelation. Or to use that spiritual revelation and the story of it for some personal advantage. He's going to allude to, in in the section here, he's only sharing it to provide contrast of what's genuine and spiritual as compared to those who are inflating hyper-spirituality and at times maybe talking about experiences that weren't even real from the very spirit himself. Paul goes on to say, verse two, talking about this now, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or whether out of the body, I don't know. He says, God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God Knows. So notice, Paul, you can tell in humility, and back to this idea of in awkwardness, do you notice in his language here, he switches, as he starts to describe this vision, he switches to third person. He goes from being in first person to third person, and then the next verse is he goes back to first person again. So we know he's talking about his own experience, but Paul switches to talking about this when he describes it. In the third person, temporarily, I think somewhat to detach himself from the whole experience because he's so awkward talking about it. It just feels so uncomfortable for him to describe this occasion, which more than likely was probably one of the most powerful spiritual experiences that he had had in his life, where he says here where he was literally caught up or brought up into heaven's realm, where he literally saw eternal things he you might say got a preview of the wonderful coming attractions god gave him a sneak preview of the glories of the paradise of heaven and the lord granted paul a private tour of heaven of the throne of god and and the realm of eternity before he actually got there himself now paul tells us here in verse two when this happened This spiritual experience, he says, this happened, notice, 14 years ago. He says, such a one was caught up to paradise, or or, excuse me, verse 4 tells us that he was actually caught up to paradise, heard inexpressible words, which isn't lawful for a man to utter. But verse 2 tells us exactly when all of this happened, caught up to heaven, the third heaven, paradise, he refers it to. He says it happened, verse 2, 14 years ago. 14 years ago. I want you to take note of that. In other words, it happened 14 years prior to Paul, now for the first time, acknowledging publicly that this event took place. 14 years prior to him writing this was when this supernatural experience happened. Now, I want you to take note of that because to me, that's very amazing. Because Paul had a genuine spiritual experience, a revelation of heaven itself. He got a sneak preview of the eternal dimension, and yet, amazingly, Paul did not believe it was needed, nor is he going to say appropriate, to talk about it publicly. He felt no need to write a book for the Christian bookstores. He felt no need to make a movie, died and caught up to heaven, and then to utilize it to make lucrative amounts of money with the body of Christ and everybody who had been interested. Wow, you died, went to heaven and came back. Tell me what it's like. Paul felt no need to do anything for 14 years. It seems that he kept completely silent. It was something between him and the Lord that he kept between him and the Lord. And the only time he's sharing it is now. And that's even reluctantly because he's just doing it for the benefit of the people of God to try and distinguish between truth and error. And he's sharing it here now, not to sound impressive, but just to help people. And I say that to you for this reason. Keep in mind at times when people feel the pressing need to have to talk about their spiritual experiences. Listen, let me say, I personally believe, we believe as a church in the present day ministry of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their present operation among the church, all of them to this day. I believe that there are genuine spiritual experiences that a person can have. The word of God speaks of them. 
Yet, that being said, I do become a bit uncomfortable when people feel the need to draw attention to themselves and to draw such attention to the fact that they had some spiritual experience or to always seem to put the focus upon what the Spirit showed them or revelations they had. Paul here for 14 years seemed to to share none of that. Now, notice how it happened. Paul says in verse 2 and 3 to us that he wasn't even totally sure what transpired he says in verse two there i know a man in christ 14 years ago whether in the body i don't know or whether out of the body i don't know he says god knows that was caught up to the third heaven and then notice for repetition and emphasis he goes right back to it again verse three it's almost as if he wants to clarify i don't know whether this man he says was in the body or out of the body i really really don't know he says only god knows in other words paul's saying I'm not sure if I was alive and I was in my body still and in the spirit, I was just experientially somehow transported to the eternal dimension to see things of revelation. Or Paul says, I don't know if perhaps maybe I had briefly died. We know Paul numerous times was severely attacked, right? He was stoned. He was beaten. And so Paul says, I don't know, maybe one of those times when I was brutally attacked I actually died momentarily, and perhaps in that moment, my spirit was released. I was brought to the eternal dimension, and then some believer was praying for me. God resurrected Paul, and he actually had his life and spirit returned to him and lived on. And Paul says, so I don't know. Maybe it was I was alive, or maybe it was an out-of-body experience with temporary death. Paul says, I honestly admit I'm not sure. He's willing to, to indicate that he didn't grasp everything regarding the realm of the spirit. But he says, this is what I know. God knows. God knows. And I appreciate Paul's heart here because notice that he's content to admit that he doesn't understand everything about the experience of the ministry of the spirit. He says, I'm not even really sure exactly how it happened. And look, though God and his word give us lots of clarity regarding the things of the ministry of the spirit and spiritual and eternal things, We don't fully have to be so concerned about grasping everything intellectually. It's okay to live by faith, be governed by the parameters of the word of God and humility to allow for a degree of mystery and to recognize we don't always have a grasp on everything spiritually, but God does. And so in humility, we can rest with that. And not always have to be so dogmatic in regards to what is right and and what we know and what we understand. These things do transpire. Paul says, I I don't know. It's a degree of mystery. I'm not really sure what happened. But notice Paul says, I do know at least what I experienced. That he was certain of. And he tells us what he experienced here in our verses in verse 2. The first thing he tells us, what I do know is this. I don't know how it happened. But what I do know is what happened. And he says that such a man, verse two, was caught up to the third heaven, to the third heaven. Now, the Bible, you'll notice if you read from Genesis to Revelation, uses the term heaven in three different ways. That's why Paul refers to here the third heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, the Bible uses that word heaven in three different ways. The first heaven or the first time the word heavens is used in the Bible at times, all the way back in the book of Genesis that God separated the heavens from the earth, that speaks of the atmospheric heavens. We might say the sky, the the clouds, where the birds are moving about. That would be the, the first heaven or the first heavens. The second heaven or second heavens, scripture speaks about at times, would be what we would then refer to as the solar system where the stars are, where the planets are, beyond the atmospheric heavens, where the stars and sun and planets are. And so therefore, then the third heaven, which is what Paul's referring to here, speaks of the eternal dimension. That is probably the more common way we would think of when we hear the word heaven. That is outside of the physical realm, into the eternal realm, the dwelling place of God where the throne of God is, where his glorious paradise existence is, where all those who've trusted in Jesus Christ, who have died and gone on to be in the presence of the Lord, where they are worshiping and serving him. And Paul says here, I was caught up into that eternal dimension. I was brought into the very presence of God in eternity. And notice in verse four, he calls this place, 
You notice the term it uses, verse 4, he uses a different description. He says, I was caught up into paradise. Paradise. What an exciting word, I think, to describe heaven's existence. Man, if you're going to give it a good word, thank you, Paul, for giving it that word. Paradise speaks of the most incredible or ideal place where nothing could be better. That's what the word paradise means. The most ideal and incredible place where nothing could be better. The Greek term actually comes from an original Persian word that spoke of a beautiful, flourishing garden. And this is the same term, remember, that Jesus himself used to describe heaven on at least two different occasions. There, when Jesus was dying on the cross, remember the thief on the cross next to him turns to him and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him today, you will be with me in paradise. There's our word. On another occasion, Revelation chapter two, verse seven, when Jesus is speaking there to one of the seven churches, he says to him who overcomes, that is to overcome this life through faith, I will give to eat from the tree of life was in the midst of the paradise of God. Now the scripture gives to us some basic explanation in simple ways of some of the sights and the sounds of heaven, the eternal dimension. Revelation 4 and 5 speak to us in, in pretty wonderful detail about the throne of God and what it's like there worshiping around his throne, the beauty of it. And then in Revelation 21, 22, you get a description of this eternal city, the new Jerusalem, and some of the beauty and the existence and the environment there. However, suffice it to say, if you want a one-word summary from the word of God of what it is going to be like when we dwell together with God forever in eternity as those who've trusted in Jesus, God says, let me give you one word, paradise. Paradise, the most incredible, ideal experience where nothing could be better. What a wonderful thing to know. Look, there are some nice places on this planet. Maybe some of you have visited and seen some beautiful, beautiful places. We use that term, oh, this location, it was like paradise or, you know, I don't know, this beach or Hawaii, it was like paradise. Well, look, the Bible is saying you don't know anything about paradise yet. Heaven is 100% paradise. Perfect, pure, eternal paradise forever and ever. And I'm telling you, Paul says here, listen, I saw it. Paul says, I got a sneak preview. It's real, man. And it was like paradise it was the paradise of God, incredible and real. No wonder, right? No wonder Paul was so ruined for this earth. You look at Paul and you, th you watch this guy as he lives out his life. I mean, he was just like a madman for Jesus. Well, can you, can you understand why now? He saw it. And when he came back to this earth, he was just ruined for this earth because he knew the reality of what existed and lay behind the temporal veil and the reality of how real and incredible the paradise of God was in the eternal dimension. And notice what Paul says about it here is very little. Visually, what does Paul tell us? He calls it the third heaven. The only visual word he gives us here is the word paradise. Man, Paul, you, you, that's all you can tell us? You couldn't give us a little more? I mean, you couldn't write us a book or something. Audibly, he does tell us, however, in verse four, notice that he heard inexpressible words, he says, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, I don't know where those were things that he heard words coming from the throne of God. Did he hear the words of God or Jesus speaking from the throne? Did he hear words of people worshiping and praising God? Paul doesn't describe, but he does say what I heard he says it's inexpressible. The idea is it was so incredible, Paul's saying, my own human vocabulary is deficient and it could never adequately describe it. It's just inexpressible. Paul's saying it left me speechless. It was so wonderful and incredible. I couldn't even describe it if I tried to. Now, Paul, notice, also says here in verse four, 
that what he heard was also not just inexpressible, too hard to describe, but he says it wouldn't even be lawful for me to utter what I experienced. In other words, Paul says it was also impermissible. Or he says, I didn't have a sense in my spirit that it was right or appropriate to tell people what I experienced. Not only could I not even describe it correctly or adequately because it was so incredible, my words would just fall way short. Paul said, after this spiritual experience, it's not just I can't describe it. He said, I just kind of sensed in my heart, it just wouldn't be right to talk about it. That I didn't have a freedom or a permissibleness from God to tell what I experienced. Now, again, can I just say to you, that's why I would just say, be sensitive and pay attention before you get so over engrossed at times in somebody's incredible spiritual experience <laughs> that they feel such permissibleness that they have to tell you and they have to tell everybody about their spirit. Amazing. Paul had a real one. And Paul said, I didn't even feel like I had permissibleness to talk. It's kind of just something between me and the Lord. And I'm only telling it 14 years later because I'm just trying to help a couple people. He wasn't sharing it to publicize it, to look spiritual or anything else. Paul says, I just thought it wasn't even right to talk about it. Verse five, he then goes on to say, of such a one, I will boast yet of myself. I don't want to boast except he says in my infirmities. That's our word that means in my weaknesses. So though Paul recognized it was an amazing thing he experienced, he says, my preference is really not to talk about these things. If anything, if I'm going to talk about myself, I'd rather draw attention to my own weaknesses so that people could be impressed with the strength and the greatness of the Lord in contrast to my own human weakness. Paul says, verse six, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. Apparently that's what you look like when you boast from God's perspective. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So notice Paul admits in his humanity, verse six here, he admits in his humanity and his sinful nature that he might be inclined to boast. That is, if he gave into that desire, he says there in verse six, I might desire to boast. Why? Because Paul was a human being just like you and I. So Paul says, in my humanity, in my lower nature, my sinful nature, I might desire periodically to boast and to brag a little bit if I'm yielding to those, Paul might say, wrong desires. Because Paul understood just like you and I, he said in Romans 7, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And he confessed his own struggles with his sinful nature. And Paul knew that our sinful fleshly nature enjoys being admired, even spiritually sometimes one of the nastiest ways pride manifests itself in our life as christians is when we're trying to draw attention to ourselves subtly of how spiritual we are whether it's you know what we're doing for the lord or or how we pray so impressively among a group and, and sometimes we can just subtly in this very gross way draw attention to our own spirituality and we have to keep on guard paul says i might desire that but he says i don't want to behave like a fool Paul says that, that I'm behaving like a fool when I start to do that because I'm drawing attention to myself and I don't want to give in to that. I says, I just want to speak the truth, he says in verse six, and he says the end of the verse. So therefore I refrain lest anyone should think of me, he says, verse six, above what he sees me to be or he hears from me. So Paul's heart was to use wisdom. And he says, so I try and use restraint in my own life spiritually, whereby I don't allow myself to conduct myself or to talk about myself in such a way where people, he says there, verse six, would think more of me than what they really should think of me. Paul was comfortable with who he was, but he didn't want people getting an inflated view of him as an individual. And you have to love the purity of heart of this guy. I mean, his, I mean he was a spiritual giant in very clear ways, and we admire his life, but yet the humility of Paul, the purity of the authentic Christian experience he was having made him deflect that which would draw glory to himself to keep focus and attention upon the Lord. Now, Paul in verses one to six here describes some wonderful blessings, these glorious experiences that he had with the Lord, revelations and visions, and this wonderful benefit and the glories of some of the valuable things that happen in the Christian life. 
But now as Paul goes on in verse 7 through 10, notice in balance, he now shows that life was balanced out by also some painful and some hard experiences. Now the elevator drops down a few floors. And he says, life also had some hard and difficult things too as a part of my spiritual development and walk with the Lord. Look what he says, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted, lifted up above measure by the abundance, apparently Paul had more than a few, by the abundance of revelations he received from Jesus, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to, to beat or to punch me lest I should be, again, he says, exalted above measure. So in order, notice, to protect Paul from the danger of pride and to keep him healthy in his spiritual walk, we see here, verse 7, that the Lord permitted some painful experiences to be a part of Paul the Apostle's life. He indicates what this painful burden was that he's referring to. He calls it, verse 7 here, a thorn in the flesh, he says, was given to me. That is, the Lord allowed something, Paul says, to be brought into my life that was extremely painful, that was very unpleasant and hard to deal with. In fact, that term there, thorn, it's almost a, a little bit of a, perhaps an understatement. The Greek term, we hear the word thorn, we, we may think of, for example, the thorn from a rose bush. I'm like, come on, Paul. I mean, what, you got a splinter and you're complaining because you were gardening and the rose thorn went in your hand? That term thorn that Paul used there doesn't refer to a pointy little thorn bush or a tiny splinter. It actually is the term that refers to the tent spike that the Bedouins would use to secure their tents out in the desert-like climate, which at times were anywhere from 10 to 18 inches long. So it's referring to a, a large tent spike driven in with a hammer the same spikes at times driven in with hammers were also used to impale people as forms of torture that's what paul's referring to here when he says this thorn in the flesh and i just bring that to your attention to realize paul's not referring to just a minor irritation in his life or some temporary inconvenience he's referring to something that was a major affliction something that brought severe pain and hardship and ongoing struggle and continuous suffering in his life. That's what Paul's speaking about here, something that brought excruciating pain, something that pierced him and hurt him in a substantial way and it was hard to deal with, a major problem. That's what Paul's describing here. Notice, however, that the Holy Spirit in God's word here chooses not to tell us in detail what the thorn in the flesh was. Now, you can read commentators, of which I'm not, and theologians, of which I'm not, and they all have ideas of what the thorn in the flesh was. And one says it's this, and one says it was malaria, one says it was Paul's eye problem. God didn't tell us. God can tell us whatever he wants to tell us, and God can also not tell us if he doesn't want us to know something. God just said it was a thorn, a very painful, piercing, problematic thing in his flesh, that is in his human experience, in the, in the, the fleshly life. So God leaves it vague here, and my personal conviction is that's purposeful. I believe the Holy Spirit left it vague because if we knew exactly what it was in Paul's life, if it was piercing migraine headaches from a health issue he had, then the only way we'd relate to the passage is if what? We had piercing migraine headaches like Paul did. But because the Holy Spirit leaves it vague and just says it's this painful experience in the fleshly life, we can then associate it in a personal way to any and all experiences in our lives that are similar in capacity. And it allows us to draw then from it and there are times the Lord may allow in our own lives something to be deposited that is a painful experience, something that is a very hard and difficult thing, maybe some ongoing problem in this earthly life. Maybe it's what's painful and hurting you presently. Maybe it's something that's transpired in the past, something that's been there and it's been irritating and bothering you in a prolonged way and it's still not changed. 
And it's this ongoing struggle, this continuous difficulty. Maybe it is an ongoing health issue. Maybe it is something that's brought chronic pain, where, as some people do, live with daily pain. And that pain never goes away. It's a daily part of their life. And there is no resolve. It's chronic pain. And they learn to live with a degree of pain or an ongoing health issue that just is there and it's never taken away. Maybe it's some emotional trauma of something that deeply wounded you emotionally. And so it has a continuous piercing effect where there's constant pain emotionally that's there and just lingers. And it's this unpleasant thing that causes continual hardship. Notice Paul also describes it here in verse 7. Not only is this painful thorn in his flesh, but then he also refers to it, verse 7, as a messenger of Satan to buffet me. That word buffet is to strike or to beat with the fist. And how interesting. As this ongoing painful things in Paul's life, this hard thing is lingering, this burden, which is no doubt what? Testing Paul. It's testing him continuously. And then what does the devil do? The, old, the devil always takes what God allows as a test and he tries to turn it into a temptation. Because in a wounded condition or when we're under a heavy burden or we're in a continuous storm or we're dealing with pain and hardship in this life on a continuous way and it wearies us and weakens us, then here comes the tempting voice of the devil, the messenger of Satan. And he says, oh, you're wounded? Perfect. I'm a bully. I like to hurt wounded people. And then he just starts punching in the gut with his little lying messages putting questions in our heads and putting wrong ideas in our minds. And those who are already hurting, the devil comes in and he begins to speak with his lying voice, these messages of Satan, just further beating up those who are already hurting, those who are already struggling. He sends these negative thoughts and these lying ideas and it causes us to question. And this is often the way the devil works to beat up, sadly, those who are already struggling and, and to impact our minds with things mentally and emotionally where we're already hurting and then the devil just tries to pile it on to make it worse. And Paul says, I went through this. this is exactly, he says, I, I sensed it. The devil's lying voice in the midst of the pain. On top of that, the devil kept trying to lie to me and tempting me to think wrongly about God or to think wrongly about my situation that God was allowing or even perhaps at times to behave wrongly, to almost want to just act out in anger because he was hurting. And to just cast caution to the wind and say, you know what, if this is what life's going to be like, then whatever, I'm going to just go out. And, and this is what the devil does. Like a messenger of Satan, Paul says. He begins to attack our minds and send wrong ideas into our heads. And Paul indicates here for us in our verse, in verse 7, two times the one purpose, at least, that he could see the Lord was using this painful experience in his life for, which was simply, Paul would say, to keep me humble before the Lord. You notice two times he says in verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul very clearly says, you know, I don't understand all of why this pain came into my life, and I don't understand why this pain's permitted to remain in my life. And Paul says it wasn't ever taken away. But he says, what I do know is one reason the Lord allowed this was that humility might continue to be a regular part of my Christian walk. And that God would use it in a way that was beneficial. He'd use the pain and the ongoing problem and the hard burden to be an instrument to keep Paul in a degree of humility in his spirit before the Lord to guard him from the destructive nature of pride. And look, folks, pride is an incredibly destructive force and an incredibly destructive thing to our spiritual lives. Pride makes us arrogant. It makes us think that we're special, that somehow we're better than other people. Pride makes us enjoy being admired. Pride can make us self-righteous and condescending in our attitudes and critical of other people around us, what's the matter with them? And, what, and That's what pride does to our hearts. Humility gets that stuff out of our lives. And Paul says, pride makes me at times stubborn. It makes us inflexible. 
Pride can make us very self-sufficient. And it can cause us to not want to receive help from people. I can do it, stiff upper lip. I can handle this. God says pride. And worst of all, pride is what makes us sadly fail to depend upon God as much as we need to. And we strive and we, we try and manipulate and scheme and do it all in the energy of our own strength. And in the meantime, our pride is keeping us from just humbly falling upon the Lord and begging God to help us and drawing near to him instead of trying to strive in our own energy through hard things. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, humility does the exact opposite. Humility brings us to a place where we relate to God properly in reverence and dependence. Humility makes us flexible in spirit. Humility makes us gracious with other people. And it makes us more understanding. Humility makes us more servant-hearted and willing to yield and to adjust. And the Bible wants us to realize that though we may not always understand why the pain and the hardships and the problems come, one good thing is this. It helps us in the area of humility, which we all need, because pride is the mother of all sin. It truly is. And pride makes us very unusable and unflexible to the work of the Lord in our life. And humility does the exact opposite. That's why God says, I oppose the proud, but I give lots of grace to the humble. And so Paul says, I don't understand why the pain, why the problem, why it's going on. But he says, boy, I'll tell you one thing. It keeps me humble. It's humbling me continuously. It's keeping me in a place of humility. And as Paul dealt with this painful, ongoing burden, continually struggling and suffering, look what he says, verse 8, concerning this thing, just like you and I. He says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So Paul continually sought the Lord repeatedly. Why? Because of the pain. Because of the problem, it brought great passion into his heart to ask God to remove the pain, to minimize the struggle, to take away the hardship. Paul says, I wasn't just praying. Look what he says. His language is clear. He says, I was pleading. That implies begging. I was begging God. I got real with God. I started begging and pleading, God, please take this away, the struggle, the problem, the hardship. And you know, I'll tell you, does it not suffice to say that pain and struggle does have this very unique way to get us very fervent spiritually, to reawaken our spiritual senses sometimes? You know, when life's going well, when everything's kind of going just in a wonderful way, we can kind of go from just being maybe close to the Lord to kind of getting a little casual spiritually, praying casually, and maybe just kind of casually staying connected to the Lord. But boy, let a little pain, let a little hardship, let a little difficulty and hardship begin to press upon us. And it's amazing how that inflames passion again and intimacy again. And the sense of dependency. Look, pain and struggle is not enjoyable, but it can be spiritually profitable. And we're eternal beings, and God knows that. And Paul here in the midst of this, he says, boy, this is indeed what happened. I started pleading with the Lord that this thing that was concerning me would be taken away. And I think part of the reason Paul pleaded with the Lord was not just that he didn't like the unpleasant experience, but personally, my conviction, I think Paul, just like you and I, was thinking, this is getting in my way. This is holding me back. It's hindering me. It's slowing me. Lord, if you would take this thing out of my life, Lord, if this was only different, I would. And you can fill in the blank there. You know, we've all prayed those if only prayers. Lord, if only, then, Lord. And we've all been there before. And we pray, Lord, if this was different or if you would change this, then, Lord... And so sometimes we think from our view, we would do better without hardship or without a struggle. That may not always be true from God's eternal perspective. Because God's going to tell Paul in the next verses, Paul, you think you'd do better? I'm telling you, Paul, you're actually going to do better in your relationship with me as you navigate the hardship as you walk through the difficulty in in the midst of the pain, because look what he says, verse 9. Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So 
Notice, Paul discovered in the midst of this experience the reality of the spiritual provision of Jesus that can be given into our life when we're going through painful and hard situations. Paul pleaded, Lord, please, please, Lord, please take this away from me. Lord, please take this out of my life. And Jesus told Paul, no doubt lovingly, but honestly, Paul, I love you and I I have your greater good in mind always. But Paul, the answer to that is no. But Paul, in connection with that answer, I want you to know there are deeper spiritual lessons and experiences that you will come to understand because Paul, though you don't always grasp it on earth, I'm preparing you for paradise, for eternity. And Paul, as I orchestrate this and that and allow this and permit that, in my mind eternally, it's not that I don't love you, but Paul, I'm preparing you for, remember what you saw? Paradise. That's what's real, Paul. This life's not the real stuff. And Paul, I'm always working to that end. So he says, Paul, my grace will be sufficient for you. Notice in the midst of his personal brokenness, Paul hears, he tells us in verse nine, a very direct personal word right from Jesus. He records it for us. He says, I heard Jesus say to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength will be perfect in your weakness. You know, tough times in this earthly life, one of the things we find that they do is they do also tend to make us very tender to hearing the voice of the Lord. Because it's in those hard moments and those difficult, overwhelming experiences or ongoing struggles or heavy burdens where it's amazing how we become more in tune with the realm of the Spirit and the voice of the Spirit. And sometimes, like Paul, we hear a personal word from Jesus and he says something to you. And maybe it's in your devotional time as you're just sitting alone with him and Jesus speaks to you in a very powerful and personal way and you know, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, I needed to hear that. And whether it's in our devotional time or maybe in the midst of a teaching through the word of God or just the still small voice of the Lord, there's that personal word right from Jesus for you. And he tells you exactly what you need to hear, me, what I need to hear. And what Paul was hearing, the lesson in the midst of this was at least twofold, was that Jesus could supply what he needed to be sustained as he walked through the personal hardship. Jesus says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, it's not the removal of the hardship It's the impartation of my supernatural grace that will give you what you need to navigate this. And Paul, if you did not go through the pain and the problem, there's a measure of my grace you would have never known and discovered. But as you walk through this, Paul, you're going to find that sometimes the greatest need, as we all realize, isn't always more temporal comfort. Sometimes it's just more communion with Jesus. It's more connection with our Lord. It's a greater experience with him to understand his ways. And he says, Paul, my grace, it'll be sufficient. The idea is it's adequate. It will suffice. It will be enough for you. My grace will be adequate to give you what you need as you walk through this situation, as you deal with the pain or the hardship, the load that he was under. Jesus would supply supernatural grace to sustain him through the struggle. And he does the same in our lives. He's not a respecter of persons. And what Paul thought and saw was a hindrance. Jesus is indicating now what, Paul? It's actually not a hindrance. It's actually something that's helping you spiritually. I know it looks like it's hindering you personally in this life. But he says it is actually going to help you because he says my strength is made perfect. The idea is it's made fulfilled or complete in the midst of your weakness. In other words, he wanted Paul to understand, because I think Paul, my own personal conviction, when I look at his life, I think Paul was by nature a very strong personality, self-sufficient. He was a driver. And if Paul knew how to do anything, he knew how to do stiff upper lip and just push forward. And sometimes our greatest strengths and who we are can actually be our biggest weaknesses. 
And so Paul was realizing this reality. Paul, when you are in the most weakened condition, when you find yourself weak because the burden is too heavy for you, Paul, what it does is it makes you understand to a greater degree how my power can be manifested in your life and how supernaturally I can give you strength to do things that you would never have been able to do humanly. And Paul began to understand that his experience with the strength and power of the Lord would be something he would discover through this and that Jesus wanted him to become more dependent upon him as his Lord and to receive the strength. Paul, I don't want you to strive, he's saying. I want you to rely on my strength, not your strength. I want you to rely on my grace and let it be adequate. And perhaps, you know, perhaps in your life, that's part of the the journey and the lesson you could be learning even right now. Perhaps the Lord is allowing certain things, has permitted certain occasions in your life where there's been something maybe for months or years that's been a chronic thing in your life. And maybe the lesson in the midst of that is the Lord is saying, would you let me give you more of my grace? Let me show you my grace will be sufficient for you. And that my strength can be there in your weakest moments. Paul's personal weakness prepared him, notice, for greater spiritual power. That's why Paul says, verse 9, Therefore, most gladly, I'll boast in my infirmities or weaknesses, that the power of Christ, that's that Greek word dunamis, the dynamic power of Jesus Christ may rest upon me. It's that same idea where Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You shall receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he says, in my weakest moments, the power of the Lord, I find, comes upon my life and shows me his great strength. Paul realized that he needed to be emptied of himself and at times even weakened personally to be empowered spiritually. That's when the power of Christ comes. He says, therefore, verse 10, I take pleasure. Now, was Paul someone who had this enjoyment of pain? Of course not. But what he's saying is, I find joy in realizing that in my weaknesses, in my reproaches, when there are needs in my life, persecutions, mistreatment for his Christian life, in distresses, that is distressing, overwhelming situations. He says, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, that's when I find I'm actually strong. When I'm weak, one translation says here, since I know it's all for Christ's good, I'm quite content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now that sounds like just a complete contradiction. Wait a minute, the weaker I am personally, the stronger I am? What Jesus says is, yes, the weaker I am in my humanity, the stronger I am spiritually. The more I die to myself, the more my flesh is crucified, the more that I become weak in my own human strength, the paradox is the flow of the power of the Lord, the power of Jesus and the power of the Spirit flows through our life. One, trend, or one you know, commentator, John, said this. Remember, he said, I must decrease He must increase. See, the reality, ladies and gentlemen, is this. The world doesn't need more of me. They need more of Jesus. And I'd venture to say the same probably goes true for you as well. And sometimes in our life, we endure through brokenness and hardship. But take heart, listen, take heart in God's economy. Broken things have greater value. Because a broken vessel becomes a vessel through which the power and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ supernaturally can flood into. And not just flood into, but flow through. And the good news is this. Life is hard, but there is grace sufficient to sustain us from Jesus as we go to him through the struggle. And in the end, paradise. 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 